In Four Oaks Church, Pastor Paul, it is a Thursday morning, May the 5th. I've got my Mandalorian t-shirt still basking in the afterglow of Star Wars Day. May the 4th be with you yesterday, but we have more important things to attend to this morning. God's Word, Romans Rewind, where we run alongside our sermon series in Romans that we've been doing on Sunday mornings at Four Oaks Killarn. And we stop here in the week to dig a little deeper, unpack some themes, truths, corollary uh, passages, things that maybe we didn't have time to really dive into on a Sunday morning. And so, of course, we're in Romans 9, probably no more controversial um, chapter in all of the Bible. Um, controversial because it really agitates and rubs up against a lot of our 21st century notions of things like equity, fairness, um, freedom, autonomy, um, you know, think, think, things that our particular culture holds in high value, um, Romans 9 thunders down like a thunderclap into the middle of that and says, let God be God. And so that's what we're um, in a broad sense, that's what we have been looking at. And so yesterday, we were talking about this idea, uh, does God love everyone the same? And um, this was spurred by this question because obviously Paul is saying here, Isaac I chose, Esau, um, Ismail, Ishmael I didn't choose, Jacob I chose, I loved, Esau I hated. And we said that this is this is more a matter of God has a distinguishing covenantal love um, for his people, a special love for his people, just like you have a special love for your family members, even though you may, quote unquote, love everybody. And one of the passages, or a couple of the passages I, I mentioned, Ezekiel 33, about God not taking pleasure in the death of the wicked. Um, and then 1 Timothy 2.4, uh, 2, God desires no man to, to perish, but all to come to know him. Well, I want, to, I want to go back to that verse in 1 Timothy, because one of you emailed a question about this, and, and I want to spend a little bit of time trying to understand, best we can, how do we, how do we fit that verse into the larger context of God's Word, things we've been learning from Romans 9. Let me say a couple of precursory things here. Theology, God's Word is infallible, inerrant, inspired, perfect. Um Theology is our man-made systems that we use to attempt to understand the Word of God. So while the Word of God is infallible, our theological systems are not fallible. Uh, I'm saying are not infallible. They they can be flawed. They can be. They need constant reforming and tweaking and understanding and conforming to the Word of God. And so every quote unquote theological system has its, um, what theologians call their problem text. In other words, here's the scope of what I think our theological system teaches about the Word of God. Um, for example, God's sovereignty, um, the theology of the Reformation, Reformed theology. Um, um, but that theology, system of theology, um, has texts that don't seemingly nicely fit into its larger system. This is the case with every theology a system of theology. And oftentimes what happens in these times is uh, folks spend all their time talking about what the verse doesn't mean. 
and how it doesn't contradict their theological system. When in actuality, and, and I'm very indebted to, to John Piper for this, we want to embrace all of God's truth wherever we find it, whatever it says, even when we're not exactly sure how to relate different parts of it to one another. That's a, that's a failure on our part, okay, not God's part. And sometimes we have to live in that mystery. Sometimes we have to live in that tension. And sometimes we just have to dig deeper. And I think that's, that's what we find in 1 Timothy 2, for, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. So let me read that text and then talk about how I think it fits into the larger context of God's sovereignty. 1 Timothy 2, 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And the question arises, how do we understand God's desire for none to perish, for all to come to, to know him, and then the very clear teaching of Romans 9, Ephesians 1, Romans 8, about God's sovereignty and election. Um, Jacob, I've loved thee, saw I've hated. Well, one, one approach has been, and I don't think this interpretation is without validity. One is to note the context that Paul's speaking in here in 1 Timothy 1, and to note, okay, that he's asking for prayers and petitions and supplications to be made for all men, right? Meaning all kinds of men, all kings who are in positions of authority. Um, and and, and the, the emphasis here is that they would be able to lead quiet and dignified lives that would be a witness to all the people around them. And so what Paul seems, well, on one hand, what Paul seems to be saying in this text is that God just doesn't desire the gospel to be in this particular ethnic group or socioeconomic group or political group. He desires all types of men to be saved. And I do think that is part of the teaching here. Absolutely. And, and so that, that so theologians might call this all without distinct distinction. Okay. In terms of types, but not all without exception, we all use the term all uh, in a variety of ways. And we don't necessarily mean every single person. However, let me just say this, there are other um, scripture passages which echo this same theme um, about the call to repentance. And I don't think we simply want to leave this text here because I think in a clear conscience, I can get up on a Sunday morning and say, God desires none of you to perish, but all to come to know him. Now, how can I say that in light of the sovereignty of God? How can, how can Paul say this? Well, one of the ways that theologians have attempted to to plumb the mysteries of God is to understand what we would call the two wills of God. Okay. There is God's moral will, which is what's explicitly revealed in his word, what we should and should not do. The 10 commandments, for example, uh, we don't have to pray about whether those things are right or true. We see them. That's God's moral will. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. But then we have what theologians call God's sovereign will, right? His sovereign will, meaning what he has decreed to come to pass. And obviously, Scripture tells us obviously, uh, 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 some of God's sovereign will, particularly as it relates to his son and the plan of redemption, but we don't, but so much of God's sovereign will is a mystery. It's what he's ordained to come to pass. Now, the question is, can God 
sovereignly decree or permit or allow, whatever term you want to use, something that is expressly against his moral will, okay? And, um, and I think the answer to that that we see over and over in Scripture is yes, there do seem to be two kinds of wills with God. And let me explain that, and then we're going to come back and relate it to Romans chapter 9. So, for example, Joseph's brothers in Genesis throw Joseph in the pit. They commit treachery, treason, attempted murder, they, um, the, in, in which all, in every way, right, violate God's law, God's revealed word, his Ten Commandments, his, even the, their own natural conscience, the law of God written on their hearts. Yet, when they go to apologize to Joseph, what does Joseph say? You didn't send me here. God sent me here. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. And so that's a great example of God's moral will, God's sovereign will. God's moral will, don't throw your brother in the pit. God's sovereign will, throw your brother in the pit, and I'm, going, I'm, I'm sending Joseph along to Egypt to prepare the way for you to save the people of God. Now, how those things relate, obviously, there's a big swath of mystery. But I think the best example, okay, of this idea of God's sovereign will and his moral will, of course, is found in the cross, all right? So, so Acts chapter 2, and you've heard me recite this passage uh, a number of times before, but it helps us to hold these two things together. Peter is preaching, and um, he says, and he's, and he's calling to task the people who executed Jesus and put him on the cross. But listen to what he says. Verse 22 of Acts 2, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Okay, let's, let's camp on that just for a second. What you did was wicked, Peter says. What you did was evil. You crucified the Son of God. You nailed him on a cross. Yet, you simply did what God predetermined with foreknowledge and his definite plan to happen to save all people, to save those who would come to trust in him. So you see that God's sovereign will, God's moral will. Let's go back a, a minute to 1 Timothy 2 in Romans 9. Here we have... Romans 9, God's sovereign purposes in election will stand. That is very clear, okay? Unconditional election. But yet, that's part of his sovereign will. But yet we see in 1 Timothy 2 or John 3, 16, a whole host of passages which are calling people to come to God, um, even ones that are expressing the heart of God. God doesn't take delight in the perishing of the wicked, for example, desires all men to come to know him. That is God's moral decree for all to come. That's why he sends his apostles to preach the gospel to whom? All men, women, children, everybody. It wasn't their job to figure out who was elect. It was their job to proclaim the word, let God open the hearts and eyes and minds of the people. And so the reason I'm, I'm belaboring this point is that a lot of times when we come to texts that don't fit our theological system, we want to jettison them or do a hermeneutical jujitsu around them, when in reality... We want to receive all of God's word. And that's why we can preach Romans 9 
in good faith and conscience and preach 1 Timothy 2 and call people to faith in God as a reflection of the heart of God, God's moral will, yet entrusting their souls to the sovereign plan and decree of God. And we have to live in that middle place of mystery. Now, tomorrow, I'm going to return back to this verse, okay, 1 Timothy 2, 4, because there's a couple other things I want to say about it um, in terms of this issue of free will and God's will. And this is part of what we're going to be talking about on Sunday, so it'll be a good segue into our message on Sunday. But there's a couple other things that I want to say about this, but this lays the groundwork which I think gives us a, a good framework for understanding these things. Plead to God for people's souls. Plead to God for his will to be done. Plead to God for justice and entrust all of those pleas to the sovereign plan and decree of God. Let's pray. Father, our minds are tiny. They're puny. So Lord, expand them, enlarge them, and give us grace. Lord, we, we don't want to have all the right answers. We want to, we want to know you. And so Father, and to and to conform our lives to your word. So Lord, give us grace in these things. We commit this day to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everybody. See you tomorrow.